Welcome to the Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reis, your host here in the head office at uh, Perusia. Um, we are not in the Voice of Charity studios today. We ask for your prayers. Jesse um, from the Voice of Charity has um, contracted um, the virus, COVID-19, uh, in the last uh, week. And uh, we ask you to pray for her as she is um, uh, in lockdown. So please, please remember her in your prayers. Today, we have a guest all the way from California, United States, the founder of the Marja Center. You may know him uh, on EWTN as well, on uh, Father Spitzer's World. Um, and he joins me live uh, from California. It's Father Robert Spitzer. Hello, Father. How are you? I'm doing well, Charbel. Uh, just great to be on with you in Australia. Uh, just Thank a you. short distance away, really, from the West Coast here. <clears throat> Thank you very much for joining us. Um, it, it's I've been uh, watching your work over the years, um, and it's just been amazing to see uh, the reach you have and, and the amount of people you are engaging uh, in in today's times. Oh, thank you. Uh, we uh, we truly are trying to to hit the uh, millennial generation, but also very much our high schools and middle schools uh, with this information on this uh, wonderful complementarity of space with faith and science. Brings in, of course, space and time. <laughs> Father, it might be it, it is your first um, first time with us, and and maybe um, an I'd love to introduce you to our audience, and maybe to start from the beginning, a bit about um, your upbringing. Um, were you were you a cradle Catholic? Uh, just a bit of background about yourself, and then maybe um, leading into how you started this work. Absolutely. Well, my uh, mother was a daily communicant, uh, so I was a cradle Catholic. My father was not a Catholic, but I uh, was very open to seeing us raised uh, in the Catholic Church. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is a lot closer to Australia than California, and um, I lived there for 18 years. <clears throat> went to a school named Punahou, which was not a Catholic school, but went faithfully to catechism classes and well, the rest, as they say, is history. I went to a Catholic university, uh, Gonzaga University in Spokane for my collegiate years. And by the grace of God, wound up being president there uh, for 11 years, um, uh, a little while later. So I've um, uh, been uh, definitely doing the faith and science thing for a long, long time. Wrote my uh, dissertation on uh, basically um, the reality of time and especially in the general theory of relativity and uh, uh, what are the, what's, what is time, how does it uh, operate in, uh, in the general theory. But um, really, I've been concentrating in the last 11 years on this complementarity of faith and science, especially in the area of physics and uh, cosmology. Though we get into all kinds of other things like uh, peer-reviewed medical studies of near-death experiences and even the scientific investigation of the Shroud of Turin and a a million other things where science really does touch upon our faith. Well, that, that's um, very, very important uh, for today. I mean, the church has always been, um, um, you know, in in the media as portrayed as against science or at a, um, opposed to science, and that's, that's nothing further from the truth. Um, uh, absolutely. And love to maybe uh, were, were you were you called to the priesthood, did you say, in, in college time? Or was that just one of your majors in studying for the priesthood? Uh, actually, you know, I didn't even, uh, I, was, I didn't formally study theology or religion um, at the time. Uh, what I did uh, do was definitely study philosophy very deeply. But that led me, you know, obviously to, to science and, um, and the complementarity there and uh, uh, was very Nice to have some professors who were able to expose me at that time to what were called the Hawking-Penrose uh, uh, equations for singularity. Uh, that really um, fascinated me tremendously. I, I happened by a metaphysics class quite by accident um, uh, when I was uh, a junior um, in, uh, in college. And uh, I heard this professor saying, proofs for the existence of God. And you know, I just stopped a mid hallway there and I kind of thought I'm going in there that sounds interesting so I went to the back of the classroom like I really belonged you know and I was just late for class and um, this guy uh, you know he's really fascinating me so I I stayed to the end of class and I sort of zoomed over to him I said hey I, I, I don't think you can prove the existence of God and he goes oh yes I can and I said well uh, well why don't you do it now and he goes 
I've been in the process of doing it for two days. I know very well you're not in this class. If you come back and take the entire class, I'll prove the existence of God to you. He did. And, and so uh, that really made a change in my life, along with the, uh, uh, the, the Hawking Penrose singularity, uh, um, you know, uh, theorems, you know, that shows the beginning of time. You know, if you have, uh, you know, infinite curvature of space at a particular point, um, this is before they discovered negative pressure in, in, in the universe. But anyway, uh, um, but uh, today there are these proofs, uh, um, you know, from science. Uh, you know, their new space-time geometry proofs. Are, they're not singularity theorems anymore. But um, one of them, the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof, uh, is a very important one that really does show uh, the need for something fundamental, uh, like a creation of the entirety of space-time outside of uh, the universe itself. So there's a lot of things uh, going on. But anyway, that, that happened to me. And, um, and uh, you know, I went uh, from the head to the heart. I know a lot of people go from the heart to the head. But um, uh, by the time I was uh, done with college, I was on fire. I, I really wanted to know about theology. And so I, I just went up to one of these Jesuits and I said, uh, well, um, where would I begin, you know, if I wanted to do theology? And he said, scripture. So I, you know, I thought, uh, okay, not Thomas Aquinas or something like that. You know, I said, uh, you know, he's got these proofs for God's existence and he's got this huge summa theologica and he goes, scripture, scripture. So I said, okay. So I got into a gospel of John class. And then after the gospel of John class, I came right back uh, full swing uh, to Thomas Aquinas, but myself a whole bunch of used books. I even got a De Potentia Dei, which was a very expensive set of books at a used bookstore and just started burrowing into it. The next thing you know, I really wanted to go on an Ignatian retreat. And um, when I got on that, uh, you know, it's a, basically a five-day retreat with this fellow, Father Steckler, George Steckler, and um, that was it. I mean, God, you know, I was smitten. I mean, I really was. I I went from the head to the heart, and that retreat was the heart. And, um, you know, after that, I couldn't avoid uh, wanting to be a priest. I, every time I turned around, I just thought, well, you know, I, my dad had a big law firm in Honolulu, and I, I, I really uh, was, you know, want to go to his alma mater, uh, Harvard Law School, and and then go to uh, take over his firm. And, and every time I tried to gear myself up, you know, for it. And I was preparing for the SAT, for the CPA exam, the Certified Public Accountants exam, try to become a, a lawyer that would uh, do financial end of things. And uh, I just, theology was a more interest. Religion was becoming slowly but surely, truly the most important thing in my life. And I could not escape this fact. And so uh, one day, um, well, I, I had a very curious experience, but uh, anyway, I was so convinced I, I should be a priest, but I was just tormented by it. I didn't want to tell my dad. I didn't want to take over his law firm or anything like that. So I, I, I you know, said to my mom, you know, what, what am I going to do here? And she said, well, I was just reading this Time magazine today, and there's a thing called the permanent diaconate. And you can get married, you could, you know, have a law career, and you could still be a deacon, you know, which is kind of halfway there. And so I thought, that's it. I'll be a deacon. And I had peace for about three weeks. But you know how it is when the Lord is calling you. Uh, after about three weeks, I'm coming out of St. Aloysius Church, which is the college church of Gonzaga, and uh, coming out of the church and uh, and uh, I see this pamphlet out of the corner of my eye. I see, uh, you know, priest, a pamphlet on priesthood. And I couldn't resist it. I picked it right up off the little uh, uh, shelf there. And I started reading. Next thing I know, I'm, I've read through the entire thing. I'm going back through it, looking at these pictures again. And I just thought, what am I talking about? I don't want to be a deacon. I really want to be a priest. My religion is the most important thing in my life. What am I talking about? And so uh, next thing you know, um, I was uh, I had another curious incident. And after that incident, I, I wound up uh, deciding to apply, uh, you know, to the Society of Jesus as a Jesuit. And the rest, as I say, is history, too. Yeah, well, and that um, how many years now have you been uh, ordained? 
well, 37 years, three years till I'm 40 ordained. So uh, 37 years. So I was, uh, I was uh, one of those uh, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, you know, folks that were uh, mostly uh, reared in the, uh, the 70s and uh, to a certain extent, a little bit of the 80s. I was, you know, ordained in 83. So, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it was, uh, those were interesting times. And, uh, but uh, again, I, I just loved, I went to the Gregorian in Rome for my theology and I, I loved it. I couldn't get enough. I mean, wow. I'd have gone to class 24 seven if I could have. I mean, I just was, I loved everything. I loved systematics. I loved history. I loved scripture, especially. Uh, went on to do a, you know, a, a THM in, in, in scripture, uh, New Testament uh, studies. And, uh, but then, you know, the province said, you know, we need you for philosophy of science. You got a, you know, an interest in the physics side of that. We, we really want people in our universities with that specialty. It's going to become more important. Boy, did they not, I mean, they didn't even begin to know how prescient those words were. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it turned out to be uh, always be obedient because <laughs> even if you don't understand it fully, it winds up. You know, God can speak through that holy obedience uh, like there's nobody's business. And so uh, I wound up doing that specialty, love that specialty, too. And and then, of course, it turned out to be really important because the more I got into it, the more, you know, my classes were just like people loved them. They, they just absolutely loved my classes because it had all the physics in it. It had the science. It had the cosmology. And um even when I was president of Gonzaga, I used to teach those classes. I could have easily, you know, filled an entire lecture hall of 300 kids, you know, uh, uh, with them. But, uh, you know, I could only max out, you know, I had three, uh, three uh, uh, faculty members who were helping me grade papers and do the usual things, which I just didn't have time to do. I did the lectures in the, in the lecture hall. And, uh, and, uh, but uh, it just filled up instantly and uh, wasn't because of me. Uh, it was because the topic was so interesting, faith and science. This is, um, was, was this in the sort of mid to late 80s or early 90s around the time? Well, when I, you mean when I did my doctorate in, in uh, philosophy of science? Or, yes. Uh, yeah, I got my doctorate in philosophy of science 88. Okay. So, um, so it was in uh, throughout the 80s. I was ordained in 83. Uh, then I went on, did the, the THM and biblical studies, um, you know, and I got that in 84 and then got my doctorate in philosophy of science and uh, metaphysics uh, in um, 88. So, uh, and then went on to, you know, I was teaching at the time at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., doing my doctorate at actually Catholic U. Um, and so uh, I kind of did a back and forth uh, deal there, but Oh, teaching at Georgetown was wonderful. And again, I, I, I could fill up, you know, we, we had an auditorium, you know, 80 was supposed to be the max for the freshman sophomore classes, but uh, <laughs> I'd just sign in anybody who wanted to be there. <laughs> so I had a great old time and, uh, and, uh, but it turned out to be really fruitful. I mean, those students, I mean, I, when I even did philosophical proofs of the existence of God, they, they just were all ears. You know, when I did the singularity theorems, you know, they were, uh, you know, the, they, they were all the vogue in those days, singularity theorems. I mean, people were just totally attentive. And today, uh, you know, I, I updated it for what's called inflationary cosmology and, and quantum gravity, which you have to do. But it's easy update. And once you update it, it's, it's amazing uh, how strong the evidence is for a creation of um, not only our physical universe, but a creation of physical reality itself uh, outside of uh, a physical universe, outside of what we call physical space-time asymmetry. So um, this is it's, exciting. Uh, it's, it is exciting. Can, can I ask um, what, what you found over the last uh, 30 years or so in teaching? Um, what, I guess, uh, was the view, typical worldview, um, as you said, uh, were people uh, looking at, science uh to try you know uh, we we hear of the the big the big big topics out there the big bang theorem or the um or uh we're trying to explain or explain away this concept of god um and and just sort of looking for a particular proof have you seen god or many people uh, you know there would have been 
common arguments um, that for one way or another, what, what's been your experience seeing over the last 30 years, um, what sort of were the pressing arguments back then and what has that sort of evolved to now? You sort of touched on it with quantum um, gravity, the whole quantum realm, but could you talk about maybe what was it sort of the, the biggest issues back in the late 80s um, in, when you were teaching th this stuff? Well, you know, uh, very few people knew, even among my students, that it was a Catholic priest who discovered the Big Bang Theory and rigorously uh, showed it. That was Father Georges Lemaitre. He's a Belgian priest, went on to MIT uh, to get his PhD and was a colleague of Einstein's at, over there at, uh, at Mount Wilson, uh, here actually in California. And of course, Einstein was at the, the Advanced Institute at Princeton. And um, so, you know, Lemaitre, Father Lemaitre showed his, uh, his theory to Einstein and Einstein, uh, because he used, you know, Einstein's own equations, but adapted them for uh, uh, what would have been a, a uniformly expanding uh, universe where the space uh, between the galaxies was actually stretching and growing. Um, and uh, when he adapted it, uh, those equations to that scenario, Einstein responded, well, you know, that would mean that there was a beginning of the universe. And he said, you know, they said the... Uh, the, the physics, uh, you know, and the mathematics is, is really great, but the idea of an expanding universe, you know, you can hardly expect me to believe this. Well, three years later, after Edwin Humble, the, the American astronomer, had, you know, done that survey of the heavens, uh, you know, Humison and, uh, and uh, Hubble made that survey of the heavens, he had proved you know, what was called the red shifting of, of galaxies. And the further away the galaxy was, the greater the red shift, which means that further galaxies are receding from us at a faster rate than uh, nearer galaxies. And the only way you can explain that is if space-time as a whole is expanding. And then, of course, Einstein knew that Father Lemaitre was absolutely correct. And he came back to Lemaitre in all honesty. And he said, you know, Father Lemaitre, he said, uh, this is the most satisfying explanation of creation that I have ever heard. <clears throat> so it was a nice, you know, uh, comeback. But anyway, uh, uh, one of the things that, that fascinated the kids was, you know, Big Bang Theory. You know, they thought, well, that's the most rigorously comprehensive physical theory that there is. You know, what could be better? And I go, and by the way, discovered by a, a Catholic priest. Uh, you know, and today we still have Lemaitre space-time, got Lemaitre walker, uh, you know, on time and, you know, coefficients. We've got, uh, you know, Lemaitre's uh, equation uh, for, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the, the proportion, the ratio of the distance from a galaxy is from us to the, uh, uh, the acceleration or the velocity of the galaxy away from us. So all these things are still around. Father Lemaitre is still very, very important uh, today. But when people hear that, they go, wow, the Catholic Church is really involved in, in the discovery of the Big Bang Theory. I said, intimately, you know, I mean, I mean, he's the first guy to, to have done it, you know, and he was so humble, you know, that when people attributed it to, uh, to Hubble, he never disputed it for years. You know, he didn't say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I published all this stuff four years before he did, you know, and th there was nothing like that. Uh, you know, he just sort of said, uh, Okay. And then, of course, as you know, probably 20 years ago, uh, all the papers were unearthed and people said, actually, you know, Hubble didn't, uh, you know, discover the expanding universe. He, he validated Father Lemaitre's theory, who, you know, Lemaitre was the one who discovered it. And then, you know, people don't know Gregor Mendel, you know, the father of quantitative genetics, was, uh, you know, not only a Catholic priest, but an abbot, an Augustinian abbot. And people don't know that uh, Nicholas Steno, the father of contemporary geology and stratigraphy, was a Catholic uh, bishop, a Danish bishop of the Catholic Church. I mean, people don't even know that Nicholas Copernicus of the Copernican Revolution, um, you know, the heliocentric uh, uh, theory, first mathematical verification of it, was actually a Catholic cleric. So, I mean, if, when you start looking at it, there are 286 Catholic priests were in the forefront of every single discipline, including quantum mechanics, um, you know, in the forefront of the discoveries of those uh, disciplines. And if you, if you want a fascinating wiki article, 
uh, just go to priest, uh, I'm sorry, uh, cleric scientist uh, wiki and um, ca or Catholic cleric scientists. And you'll see 286 of these guys who are at the forefront. And by the way, the Catholic church is the only church to have a pontifical academy of sciences with uh, 46 uh, Nobel Prize winners that have participated in it. So wow. just saying, we're not a bunch of slouches in the Catholic Church who are uh, making science a whipping boy for anything. We've never thought there was a contradiction between faith and science. Au contraire. We thought uh, precisely the opposite. And uh, so uh, um, we've made our contributions. And by the way, like I said, you know, back then, the real deal, you know, was creation of the universe, um, you know, viewed from the vantage point of singularity theorems. Today, um, you know, the, the, the new um, uh, evidence for God from contemporary physics focuses on three areas. Uh, the first is uh, uh, new developments in the theory of entropy. Um, that's been a, a huge deal because entropy really cuts through all the multiverses and everything else. It, it just seems to show a beginning, not only of our universe, but of any physical system. And the reason for that is because disorder, um, which is basically equilibrium in, in physics, right? So thermodynamic equilibrium would be the, the worst thing you can have in physics. That's complete disorder because nothing can happen at thermodynamic equilibrium. But the opposite is the case, you know, and that is that uh, uh, it's very good to have disequilibrium of temperature, pressure, molecular distribution, et cetera, because wherever you have disequilibrium, there you have the capacity for a system to do work. Now, the main thing to remember is that uh, entropy is the, 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 you know, the process by which all that good energy, all that disequilibrium, all that physical order needed to do work, it's running down just like a mechanical toy, right? So you wind it up, but it's only got so much tension, disequilibrium in that coil. And eventually what's gonna happen is it's just gonna stop. And that's what's not only, only gonna happen in our universe, it's also gonna happen even in a multiverse. There have been various attempts to try and get the multiverse out of it. Sean Carroll is one example, but Really, it, it really doesn't work because there's so many problems uh, with the multiverse. And uh, we can talk about that in another uh, point. But multiverses are big today. Uh, quantum uh, gravity and quantum cosmology is a big deal today. Um, so the, the proofs, the, the evidence for, uh, for creation, the evidence for creation outside of space and time, outside of uh, you know, our physical universe or even a multiverse, that's what's really the big deal today. So back in the 80s, people weren't really thinking about multiverses. They, they weren't thinking about string universes in the higher dimensional space of string theory. That comes as part of the quantum cosmology, quantum gravity area. So they, they, they just, you know, you didn't have to, to deal with that sort of thing. Um, they weren't thinking about even, you know, um, what, what we now call, you know, um, uh, you know, bouncing universes on steroids, right? Uh, you know, the uh, Steinhardt-Turok, uh, you know, expanding universe where you, you again, you're, you're depending on higher dimensional space. So you have three dimensional, two, three dimensional, um, you know, kind of worlds that are positioned between a four dimensional bulk space time. And they kind of, uh, these membranes collide in the four dimensional bulk space time and they burp out additional universes. So there's all kinds of theories out there but right now, if you really look at the implications of the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof, and you look at the implications of entropy, it actually applies to multiverses, uh, string universes in the higher dimensional space of string theory, uh, bouncing universes, even on steroids, et cetera. So basically you've got some uh, uh, really interesting evidence uh, for God, even if you postulate all of these, by the way, very hypothetical scenarios, but, you know, they're there. And uh, so, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, it's interesting stuff. But uh, Board of Lincoln Goose Proof is, uh, you know, the, the per people who, you know, uh, developed it, you know, Arvind Borda, 
Alexander Blinken and, and Alan Guth. I mean, Alan Guth uh, is really truly a remarkable person. He He's the father of inflationary cosmology, holds a chair at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, which is um, uh, you know a high-end deal here in the United States. Uh, Alexander Blinken, uh, he's actually the director of the Institute of Cosmology at Tufts University in Boston, another high-end guy. And Arvind Borda is at the Cavalier Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So these guys uh, are not uh, what we might call um, on the, the low end of the physics scale. And, um, you know, it, they've really uncovered something which is not just suggestive of a creation outside of space-time asymmetry or even outside of a multiverse, but a creation of physical reality itself and all space-time systems. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And then we've got a whole other area right now, uh, you know, fine-tuning. I just finished an article for a, a volume called... Uh, uh, theism and atheism, uh, you know, uh, uh, contrary arguments in, in philosophy. Uh, it's one of these Macmillan reference deals. Uh, but I, I did the, uh, uh, with uh, Dr. Sinclair, I did uh, the article there on fine tuning and uh, indications of intelligent life. And um, there is a ton of evidence there. But that's a big topic for another, you know, uh, podcast or something. But it's, it's fascinating, I mean, where you not only see the creator of the universe, mm. you see how smart he really is. Yes. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> mega intelligence here. This is fantastic. I, I do want to give a, um, in the comments section, uh, you're welcome. Those who are watching can make any comments or ask any questions. Very happy to ask on your behalf. But uh, we've put in the comments section the links that Father has, has mentioned. And also, you'd notice there's a link to the Marjus Center Maybe we'll quickly, right in the middle, midway here, talk about the Marja Center um, mm -hmm. and a bit about what, when did you found the Marja Center um, and then what can people expect from it? How do people get involved? How can they learn more about what the Marja Center does? Yeah, the current iteration of the Marja Center uh, uh, occurred when I came down here. Um, so that was... Uh, uh, in 2009, I, I came down to California. As I said, I was president of uh, Gonzaga until 2009. And, um, you know, at, at that time, it was very clear to me, not only from my classes, um, you know, and the students' needs uh, to know the evidence for God from contemporary physics, uh, the evidence for even, uh, you know, transcendent intelligence from contemporary physics, even the evidence for a soul, you know, from contemporary peer-reviewed medical studies, near-death experiences, things like that. They had real needs. And I knew it. Uh, and this is way before the Pew surveys came out in the United States. Now, the Pew Foundation has very, very good uh, research surveys um, that they run. And they are especially interested in the whole question of religion. But um, in 2012, they did the first survey that showed that the main reason for the uh, for a kids, uh, uh, you know, I call them kids, but you know, we're talking about basically um, uh, from 10 years old all the way to 35. So the um, it, um, uh, let's just call it millennials, Gen Zs, etc. Um, you know, the whole span there from 10 to 35. Why were they leaving the faith? In fact, why were 42% of them leaving the faith? The primary reason, bar none, the first one was because of the, um, uh, of the uh, uh, rift between faith and science. They felt that there was no evidence for God from science. They felt that there was actually a contradiction between religion and science. Science had to be the truth. Therefore, religion had to be false. And they were literally talking themselves out of their faith by a completely false contention. There's tons of evidence for God from science, mm. and there's a, no contradiction between faith and science, and there never really has been a contradiction uh, between faith and science. So I just thought, okay, we got to stop this on a massive scale. So our objective back then was to uh, try and put together all the materials we could to um, not only, you know, bring to a website, you know, not only, but we wanted to train teachers uh, to use this in our Catholic middle schools and high schools. We wanted to train 
confirmation teachers here in the United States, we have basically most of our confirmations are either seventh and eighth graders or um, ninth and 10th graders. And this is, you know, we, we know from this other study called the CARA study, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, we know that for us, the mean age at which our kids are going to make the decision that they need to leave the church is 13. So it was much earlier than anyone had thought. When I came down here in 2009, I thought, okay, if we could just reach the high school students and the college students, we'll be in pretty good shape. But no, that's really not the case. We need to reach the middle school students. I'm sure Australia is probably Absolutely. very same uh, range. 13 is probably the age they're really considering it. They won't leave because you can't do it in front of their parents. The minute they get the chance, senior year of high school or go to college, off they go. And so they, you know, the decision has been made. So we need to counter it uh, right up there. And so we decided we need to get it in the confirmation classes too. But it, it honestly took about nine years to gear the whole thing up because, um, you know, first of all, I had to assemble all the material and I had to write all the books. So it, it, it took me five books, regular scholarly books to, to put it all together. There's a, a book I wrote for Erdman's called New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy. That kind of was the starting point in 2010 where you know, I, I kind of got the, 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 the scholarly academic layout done. Uh, then I did uh, the soul's upward yearning, you know, looking at the evidence for the soul, then started looking at the evidence for Jesus, God so loved the world, you know, et cetera. So then uh, trying to, to put all those things together. But anyway, it, it took a little while to get the scholarly stuff done. And then it has to be converted uh, to modules and curricula that teachers will show in class. Um, and religion teachers, a lot of them don't have a science background. So, uh, you know, there's like the first time they hear stuff, they go, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about this. I'm not gonna show anything about this because I can't answer any questions about this. So they, they get a, a kind of a block. So what we had to do was put it into modules where basically you just download them for free. So if you go to Maja Center, uh, or I'm sorry, CredibleCatholic.com, CredibleCatholic.com, just go to that. And if you just click on seven essential modules, you can, they're all there. You can just download them. You can download all seven modules, show them to your classes if you're a teacher or a catechist. But it's all there for you. The, the, the modules are read to the students. So you just, you know, you download them to your computer and you just turn your computer on, um, you know, with the, if you can get a, a nicer screen, you know, than your computer screen or a little television set or, um, you know, a little amplified uh, signal uh, for the audio. Uh, that's great because then the whole class can sort of watch it together. And a module can be done in about 45 minutes. Uh, but if you want, if teachers want to have discussion about it, it's it's pretty good. There's we don't use a lot of tech talk. We certainly don't use equations. Occasionally, we'll have a number. You know, we're talking about fine tuning and things of that nature. Where we show the extraordinary, you know, <laughs> extraordinary odds, exceedingly, exceedingly, exceedingly improbable odds <laughs> of something happen happening. So we will always compare it to something analogous that's within the reach of the teachers and the students. But it, it took a little time to convert all that stuff to, you know, things with, you know, you have to have videos that intrigue the students in the, embedded in the modules, you know, by experts. And you have to have, you know, graphics in the, in the videos to hold their attention, um, things of that nature. So it took a little time to put those together. And then we needed to create a dissemination system. Uh, obviously, we started with the U.S. And, um, you know, it's uh, our intention uh, uh, next year will be in Ireland, in every single high school in Ireland, um, north and south. Uh, so, oh. The, the Irish uh, Council of Catholic Bishops has been huh, so, so wonderful to us. I mean, it's just been great. So we're trying to get it, you know, there. And, you know, um, of course, Perusia, you know, your ministry 
for sure hoping that our partnership with you will get a lot of teachers uh, interested, a lot of catechists interested. Um, and believe me, these things are really usable. And we've got an MTP program, a master teacher program uh, here where we'd love to teach um, even Australian master teachers. Uh, unfortunately, the certificate comes from Catholic Distance University here in the United States, but I think it would count um, very much in Australia. So if um, there are some Australian teachers who uh, would want to get certification uh, in this kind of uh, contemporary apologetics, it will really be, response, uh, be responded to by the students. Um, that, that could uh, really, um, uh, you know, uh, be a help to us because once you have teachers right there who go through the certification program, um, and that's on the same website, CredibleCatholic.com. So both the the master's um, course and the um, the modules for teachers who could use in classrooms are both there um, on that website? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you can get all the workbooks too. They're free of charge. Everything's free of charge. Completely free. Well, Completely free. That's um, amazing. How have you done that, Father? <laughs> God bless you. Uh, well, we don't give printed workbooks. Uh, you'd okay. have to download the workbook and okay. print it here but saves a lot of currency exchange you know when yeah. you send it to ireland or australia you know the, the government would like to tax it you know and you know, both ways so um you know it's probably easier just to download it and, and <laughs> just photocopy it there in australia there's no copyright restrictions well this is this is brilliant um if you're a teacher watching this, um, I, I strongly urge you to, to, to check out the links, download these modules and use them in your classrooms. Um, th these are the questions our young people are asking today and and uh, we need to really have some sound responses to, to faith and science and, and really uh, debunk the myth that the church is against science. I really want to unpack that, Father, with you in a minute. Um, sure. I do want to do a little mention out there uh, that Perusio is going to do its bit in promoting this across Australia, um, across all the dioceses and, and schools. So if you are watching this, any any priests out there or bishops or anyone in, in leadership uh, of education, please contact me and, and contact us at Perusia, and we'll tell you how we can and help uh, implement that uh, for you completely free. And this is what's exciting about it. Um, and we want to do a lot more with Father Spitzer in this space. And look out next year as we launch our Perusia Academy one of the modules we want to present is is something on faith and science and 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 many of these courses so present them to you as well so look out for all of that um praying for this work this is ex excellent father what a, what a um a legacy so how many how many courses are there right now so it, it, um you've got uh is it a junior high level and can you have go through what sort of what's been done so far yeah, we have what's called a 12 plus. That's basically a junior high and above. You can actually use the junior high one for high school. And a lot of high school teachers like to use the 12 plus, but the 12 plus is also good for middle school. And don't think for a second that sixth, seventh, and eighth graders are not completely tuned into these problems. So module one, you know, deals, you know, I mean, the near death experience uh, data just blows them away. Wow. But the second thing that blows them away, when they see the evidence for God from contemporary physics and cosmology, that's module two, blows them away. And then we know the five big questions that they're going to ask the minute you show, you know, that, that you have a, 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 you know, a confluence of, of faith and science, a 13.8 billion year old universe, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, how's that square with the Bible, you yes. know? 6,000 years or something and, and so forth. And they got the wrong evolutionary picture here and so forth. So we do have a um, module three is devoted to the first, the Bible and science, why they're complementary and not contradictory. Beautiful. Right? Because it, there's a completely different kind of methodology doing completely different things. And we try to explain what, what's going on there. The second thing is, of course, evolution. You know, the Bible doesn't have anything about dinosaurs. The Bible doesn't have, we, we hear it all the time. But the Bible does have something about mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam, who are our ancestors, right? That are, that, you know, every single one of us on this earth has mitochondrial um, Eve's uh, remnant, um, you know, of what we call mitochondrial DNA. And so, uh, you know, our common mother is, her DNA is in every single person around here and every man on the globe. I don't care if you're from Australia 
or <laughs> Africa or China or Europe. It doesn't really matter. We all have, every male has the remnant of Y chromosome, Adam. Both of our common ancestors lived 200,000 years ago. Okay, that you say, well, the Bible looks like it's 6,000 years ago. Well, it's not. It's 200,000 years ago, and here's why the Bible doesn't have the right number, because they weren't doing science. Uh, that, that's a, a huge reason why. And uh, we know that even, you know, um, uh, you know, we have a, a variety of other things that just show how the soul uh, was part of that evolution. It's not just having, uh, you know, our common genetic ancestors. Uh, we can actually identify the point at which our genetic ancestors probably got a soul. And that was probably about 70,000 years ago. And the reason we know that is because for 130,000 years, our genetic ancestors were hanging around the border of Namibia and, and Angola. And they just sat there cracking coconuts and eating bananas, happy as clams, doing nothing. Then suddenly, 70,000 years ago, they start doing everything. They go on this geographical binge. I mean, they literally scoot up to the top of Africa, cross the streets, go over into Europe, go over into Asia, all the way down to Indonesia, go all the way to the very tippy top of Europe, cross the Arctic land bridge, which was of course exposed in those days, right over to Alaska, come right down the entire tip uh, you know, of Alaska and actually move from Indonesia to the aboriginal populations in Australia, I might add. And this is going on 70,000 years ago, all the way down to the tip of South America. And they do that in 10,000 years. For 130,000 years, you know, there's just scratching their heads down there in Angola and Namibia. And suddenly they do all this, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. What else is going on? They start forming conceptual languages where they can actually say something about something. Well, this doesn't happen uh, just, you know, out of a biological switch uh, in, in the human brain. Conceptual ideas, you, you're going to have to get over the problem of what's called abstraction. Too much to talk about right now, but, in, you know, chimpanzees, highly trained chimpanzees like Nim Chimsky have never been able to do this because chimpanzees don't have any conceptual awareness. They have perceptual ideas. They don't have conceptual ideas. Therefore, they can't have predicates. They can't have direct objects. They can't have uh, you know, indirect objects. They can't have any abstract thought whatsoever. A chimpanzee can't even tell you the difference between dog bites man and man bites dog. Can't tell. Whereas a little one and a half year old will chortle at the very prospect of a man biting a dog, getting the humor. The point of course is that's because the, the little two-year-old gets conceptual language and therefore they get syntax. Uh, monkeys can be trained, by the way, chimpanzees like Nim Chimsky can be uh, trained to do 200 words in American Sign Language, uh, but they, they can't, you know, no syntax whatsoever. So syntax develops and what happens? The as the geographical expansion continues, there's a sheer proliferation of languages all over the place. I mean, it's just the most remarkable thing, as if our very soul were programmed to do conceptual uh, syntactical linguistics. And, and, and just, you know, this happens. And so you go, well, how did this happen? Not the flip, flip of a genetic switch. This is not just a biological process. The third thing that happens is human beings start getting self-reflective. And again, we can show, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of work that's been done by David Chalmers at Oxford University, a bunch of other people that really show that self-consciousness is not reducible to a physical process. Inner awareness is not reducible to a, a physical process. Too much to talk about today. Then something else happens. You know, these human beings start burying their dead. But Neanderthals buried their dead. What's the difference? When human beings, Homo sapiens sapiens, started burying their dead, they started putting objects into the grave that could be used on their journey after this life is over. There's food, there's weapons for protection. There's all kinds of indications that these people actually had a sense not only of the afterlife, but they're trinkets of gods, trinkets of divinities that are, you know, placed in there with them. Uh, you know, God divinities are going to protect them on the journey. 
journey, right? Now, this is going back, you know, to the caves of Indonesia. This is to the caves in, in Heidelberg, which go back 50,000 years. You know, uh, we can uh, trace these things. Actually, we can trace them back even a little bit further. But then that's just the tip of the iceberg. They start putting together little counting rods, right? Notched sticks, and then from notch sticks to movable, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, pins like not quite an abacus yet, but something akin to an abacus to do, you know, counting boards and things of that nature. So we see that mathematical consciousness is already developing too. And then the art on the walls of the cave, not just symbolic art, but symbolic art that reveals that they have a sense of transcendence, of religion, uh, you know. So, I mean, basically what happened 70,000 years ago, the evidence points to that, that, that Homo sapiens became Homo religiosus, Homo mathematicus, Homo linguisticus, Homo symbolicus, Homo, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, transcendentalist, if I can put coin a word. So, I mean, there's basically this this uh, this complete transformation that betrays something happening beyond what physical processes can do. And of course, the kids are fascinated. So, they, you know, our ensouled relatives were 70,000 years ago? Absolutely. I think this is almost pinpointable that you have, a, you know, kind of a an ensouled Adam and an ensouled Eve, and they give rise to an ensouled progeny um, that still is with us today. We are categorically different from chimpanzees and from dolphins and you know so forth. Uh, we are um, not only saying things about something, we, we're, we have mathematical consciousness, logical consciousness, transcendental consciousness, religious consciousness, symbolic consciousness, um, and so forth. It's, it's utterly fascinating and it fascinates them. Uh, you know, we, we've never, Catholic Church has never denied evolution. The Catholic Church, you know, even John Paul II in his allocution 1996 to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences basically said evolution is more than a hypothesis. It's now a validated theory. And so, uh, you know, Catholics have been free to believe this even since uh, uh, 1951 uh, when uh, Pope uh, Pius XII wrote Humani Generis. But kids don't know it. They think the Catholic Church is against uh, evolution, uh, which of course is um, not true at all. One of the greatest uh, uh, anthropologists of all time was a Jesuit by the name of Father Pierre de Chardin, uh, Teilhard de Chardin, and, and a variety of others. So there's uh, certainly um, the Catholic Church been pretty enlightened about these topics for, for quite some time. But anyway, that's, that's module three. Uh, module four, of course, is all the evidence for Jesus, historical evidence, even evidence for his resurrection from the Shroud of Turin, the scientific investigation of the oh, Shroud. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, you just got to watch Module 4. It really rivets the kids. It has huge impact on them, to be honest with you. And then um, Module 5 is all about the church. But we make recourse to miracles, Eucharistic miracles, uh, uh, Marian miracles, just to show, you know, if there's some scientific validation for these miracles, how it points to the Catholic Church and Jesus's uh, basic commission of Peter and Matthew 16, uh, 17 through 19. So uh, that's five and then uh, six is on the four levels of happiness, which is really about four levels of meaning and purpose in life. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the, the seventh one is the big question. Another big question for the kids. Why would an all loving God allow suffering? And how do you use your faith uh, to explain um, uh, to, to, to deal with suffering well? not only to get into the kingdom of heaven, but to help a lot of other people uh, to get into the kingdom of heaven and to help people uh, to deal with this life, uh, you know, uh, with the compassion uh, that Jesus showed, not only to those who are um, sinners, but to those who are in real physical needs. And, um, and uh, um, it's, uh, uh, that's, that's basically the series, uh, but it, uh, it does. All have completely a free, all completely free at CredibleCatholic.com. Wow, incredible! Well, that's in there, um, and and please, there's a there's a whole lot there, that, and, and now we're, this is not going to do justice. This show to <laughs> dive into a lot of them. Um, um, I'm my mind is buzzing right now. Just everything you just said, and there's a lot of things I've just heard for the first time there. And uh, you know, when you're doing Bible studies, that all these common questions uh, occur, and you've addressed many of these. And, and it, in fact, uh, it sounds like you've addressed pretty much all of the most common questions when it comes to um, existence of God, the creation, 
uh, an evolution um, concept, the idea of um, uh, intelligent designer. I love, I love uh, that there was a DVD uh, you were part of in that whole project there. Um, and just all this, none of this contradicts your faith. None of this contradicts your Catholic faith. Just to reinforce, if people are hearing this for the first time, all this points towards the Catholic Church and its teachings, and it doesn't shake your faith. In fact, it strengthens it. And tell us about your own personal faith, Father. As um, how has this um, strengthened your own personal faith? The more you dive into science. Well, you know, uh, it, it actually has in in an interesting way. I mean, uh, these near-death experiences are so fascinating. Uh, that was one way. Uh, you know, I was right there at the beginning of it, way back in 1974, when I saw the first uh, set of studies from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Raymond Moody. And so I became fascinated then. But now I look at the evidence, it's just overwhelming. Uh, this new Samuel Parnia study, a, fr a study from the University of Southampton in, in England, um, is really something, 2060 patients, and they really do have uh, the evidence there that, uh, that there's no way you can explain what these people are doing and saying by simply appealing to a hallucination. Uh, you're gonna have to appeal to some form of consciousness that survives what's called clinical death or bodily death. So if you had a heart attack, for example, and, and you, uh, um, you, you, 30 seconds after that heart attack, basically your brain functioning is going to go down to zero electrical activity in the, in the cerebral cortex and the frontal cortex, which is, you know, high thinking and judging functions in the brain. Um, it's going to go down to zero, flat EEG, you know, electroencephalogram. And uh, when that happens, you're not going to be doing any thinking with your brain. But these people, oh, 30 seconds after that, they have no gag reflex, so no even brain activity going on in, in, the, in the lower brain, uh, fixed and dilated pupils. They're basically, you know, one you know, micrometer away from, uh, from brain death. And what are they doing? Highly high cognitive functions. They're seeing things. 80% of blind people actually see when they're clinically dead for the first time, uh, totally inexplicable by means of physical apparatus, brain chemistry, physical processes, can't do that because basically blind people don't have any visual images. In fact, one of our videos in our first module there on near-death experiences, she's an English lady named uh, Nora who got into an automobile accident when she was 22, born blind from birth. You want to just click on that video just to click on it because if you see it, it will practically, you know, it'll just nail you because she says, well, you know, I, I had, you know, thoughts of taste. I had thoughts of, you know, um, tactile, you know, uh, touching and, and and smell and so forth and so on. But I, I didn't have any visual thoughts whatsoever. And then she talks about what happened in this accident. And, uh, you know, 30 seconds after the accident, her soul just floats out of her body. She's seeing everything for the first time, not through her physical eyes. She's seeing her body sitting there in the car in the accident with her other eyes of her soul, if I can put it that way, describes it perfectly in complete detail. And, uh, you know, goes over to the other side, of course, sees Jesus. And, uh, you know, is this incredibly loving white light. And, and she's describing this in, in, in a most remarkable way. But, you know, I think kids who see this for the first time um, are just blown away. I know they're blown away because I see the evaluations of the students who just say, more of these you know, we, we want to see more of these videos, and, and they, they, they do. But, I mean, the point, of course, is is when I studied that, that, that was really fascinating. For me, uh, you know, of course, uh, being from the physics side of things, I basically also was very, very impressed uh, by uh, the what I call the intelligent design argument. There's a wonderful uh, book by a guy named Luke Barnes, and it's called Fortunate Universe. And he, by the way, is a good Australian there. Um, and, uh, Sydney at the University of, uh, no, I'm sorry, University of Melbourne, uh, perhaps. At, do you have an astronomical observatory there, I think? In, would be in Melbourne, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, and so he, uh, he uh, wrote a book called Fortunate uh, Universe. Uh, you just have to read it. It's, it's, uh, okay. it's just like uh, the, the, the development of the fine-tuning argument and transcendent intelligence you know, uh, designing the universe is really spectacularly, you know, um, well-developed, you know, since 20 years ago. 
And uh, I thought I think Luke Barnes uh, has a most uh, accessible book for you know you'd have to have a little bit of physics background. Uh, you, you know, you just you, you know it wouldn't you know quite be there. But it's not like you have to 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 know all the equations. Uh, if you if you have a little bit of uh, uh, you know uh, physics background and uh, a science interest, you could pick up that book and get it. Or if you didn't want to go into that kind of technicality, you could just go in, uh, to our second module, or you could uh, go to uh, CredibleCatholic.com again, click on the big book, and just click on Volume Two, and all this stuff is kind of simplified for you uh, in a form. It's more technical than the modules, but uh, the workbooks have a little bit more, you know, uh, tech, uh, a little bit more complete treatment uh, than the modules. And then the big book is what we call it. Um, the big book uh, has the most complete, uh, and those are summaries. But like I said, this Australian Luke Barnes, he's, he's really something. And his response to the multiverse arguments is also one of the most enlightened responses. So I, I'd say... Uh, might take a look at him. Yeah, definitely. We'll look out for that. I do want to um, just raise a, a question here. Um, Dorothy, um, watching from the Cradio platform, is uh, asking, um, uh, are, are you covering anything about the string theory and then of, of the expanding universe theory? And which age level would that be pitched at? Yeah, we have, as I said, we have a middle school. Uh, yes, we do cover it. Uh, string theory is covered um, in module number two. Two. Okay. Um, yeah, module two, and uh, again, we and um, expanding universe is also covered in module two. So go to module two. There, uh, we have the twelve plus version um, would be for the middle school seventh and eight, uh, seventh and eighth grade here, um, and then for the uh, high school we have a fifteen plus version. But like I said, many of the high school teachers like the twelve plus version. And then we are putting together a, a, a good advanced one. So our, for our master teacher program, we have what are called advanced modules. And advanced modules would have a much more complete explanation of string theory, much more complete explanation of multiverses, much more complete explanation of quantum gravity, et cetera. So that would be uh, the advanced modules. There, You can make a whole course in your senior year out of those advanced modules. And in Ireland, uh, indeed, that is what they're doing. They're making an entire course uh, for the senior cycle uh, from those advanced modules. So you can, you, you've got three really big, you, you have three levels. You, you have the basic uh, middle school, you've got the high school, and then you've got the advanced, which are really for high school seniors, um, uh, could be for juniors in a good prep school. Uh, but for high school seniors, also for college students, and also for um, uh, uh, teachers, uh, you know, uh, especially teachers who are going through our master teacher program, uh, we would have those uh, available. And again, they would have their own separate workbooks, which would be much more developed on things like, you know, science or scripture or whatever it may be. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, th Father, we are out of time, would you believe? I cannot believe it. It's no. so quick. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I do want to invite uh, those watching um, and listening uh, to this podcast to go and visit. Um, if you go to the Perusia Media website, we will have the page up in the next uh, day or so. Uh, you'll see all the links that we've been mentioning in today's show. Uh, it's going to be part of a partners page that we've got um, exclusive on, on the Perusia website. And we're going to point you to the Marja Center and all of the wonderful work. There's free articles that point you to that website. These modules, as Father was mentioning, Credible Catholic, uh, and of course, um, any of these uh, materials that are online, any of the uh, videos online that are free, and of course, uh, links to, to purchase any of the books as well. So we're going to make sure that we um, bring all that together um, and and present that to you. So those who are already on our on our database, um, you'll you'll get emails this week about all of this. And uh, of course, if you haven't signed up to our email list, I invite you to go to perusiamedia.com. Pop in your email and then you'll be up to date. Each week we'll send you uh, information about what's happening in the Perusia world, including this week's podcast and everything we've mentioned as well. Father, I want to thank you so much. Um, uh, oh, love to have you on again uh, in the oh, future. Yeah. And maybe we can break open a specific topic uh, 
Um, it, I mean, the near-death experience sounds fascinating. Oh, I yeah. Into that more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Shroud of Turin, of course. Um, right. That, for me personally, uh, is quite uh, important. And then um, uh, just, just creation versus evolution, all these yeah. fascinating topics. I want to thank you. Uh, you've certainly given me a lot to think about personally, and I hope uh, others uh, dive in a bit deeper and, and take their, their faith deeper as well. Oh, thank you, Charvel. It's really been an honor to be with you and just to reach your, your good Australian audience here. So thanks for the opportunity. But could I ask uh, uh, maybe a, just a, a final blessing um, as we close here? I figured you might. Yeah. <laughs> pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation and love send his spirit down upon you to inspire and guide you. May he tell you not only of his intelligence, but always of his overwhelming love for you, calling you through that love into the fullness of salvation through the word of Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church. May Almighty God bless you all, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. That's a, a scientist and a faith-based man that has a deep relationship with God. There you go. Um, thank you so much. Thank you.